0: Welcome to the Board of Excitement podcast from Public Grief Junkie. Hello there and welcome to our fifth, yes, fifth podcast. Um, If you missed last week's one, you dodged a bullet. We didn't announce it because it was so grim as to be almost unlistened to a ball. Um, Not because of the uh, excellent production work done by Richie, but because it was all about death, uh, drinking yourself to death prostitution, poverty and squalor, so... And suicide uh, under trains. And suicide under trains as well. Um, so, yeah, if you didn't tune in, you didn't miss anything, it's still there, just behind this one, if you want to uh, tune in. If not, we'll uh, we'll let it sink gently from sight, I think, and press on with this week's uh, epic. This week, uh, there's going to be two bits. Uh, I'm going to read something called... well, oh, I don't know what it's called, actually, but it's a bit about um, a mate of mine called The bag Man, um, and it's for the book again, and it's... Um, Uh, It's how he became the Goatbag Man, basically. Um, Which I didn't know until I asked him. I mean, I knew how we came to call him the Goatbag Man, and that came about because his name's Lewis, and there's two Lewises in our kind of circle or whatever. And it would always be, is Lewis coming? Which Lewis? The Goatbag Man Lewis, you know. Artist Lewis, the other one. And we're busy people. We haven't got time to think about which Lou's coming to the pub, do you know what I mean? So if we just called him the Goatbag Man, it cut all that unnecessary chatter out, okay? So, uh, so that's that. So we're going to read that first, and then we'll have this week's blog, um, which is which went up last Thursday, um, which is about all kinds of stuff. But first, here is some old news. A couple of weeks ago, the podcasts became downloadable, which is uh, very exciting for literally everyone, uh, on iTunes. So just search them on there and uh, we'll be in your phone. That's nice, isn't it? Just going wherever you go, we'll be sitting there, me and Richie, in your phone. Lovely, reassuring. Um, And that's, I'm afraid, all the news. Okay, so the first of this week's pieces is The Ballad of the Goatbag Man. I hope you like it. I hope he likes it, come to think of it. okay. chapter two, The Ballad of the Goatbag Man in which we learn about dysentery, how to establish a business partnership built upon loathing and spite, and basic principles of wholesaling. The phrase, there's nothing solid with dysentery, does not belong to the world of intestinal medicine, as we might expect. Instead, it belongs to the small corner of the informal economy which, in turn, belongs to Lewis and his leather satchels. Lewis's story differs from what we have seen thus far. Instead of either utilising an existing skill or hobby to start a market stall, He had gone to India to find something he could bring back and sell to fund further travel. There is a time-honored precedent for this. In fact, it's what made Camden a giant showcase for Thai silver in the early 90s, and upon which the market that now exists was built. Dysentery can be dealt with relatively easily by drinking lots of water and taking salt supplements to avoid the chronic dehydration that is the hallmark of the disease. On a more practical note, it's also best to avoid anxious or nerve-racking situations such as standing next to a broken-down bus in the middle of Rajasthan with armed bandits heading your way. Unfortunately for Lewis, he had failed to avoid this. Also, he was attracting attention amongst his fellow passengers for reasons other than dysentery, which seemed to go largely unnoticed, or at least uncommented upon. What was of far greater concern was his clothing, and not just the areas affected by dysentery either. In fact, the medieval chronicle tells us that, due to eating bad oysters at Calais, The English longbowman who defeated the flower of French chivalry at the Battle of Agincourt did so with beshitted trousers, proof that the condition, while unpleasant, is no bar to acts of heroism. Nonetheless, something has got to be quite remarkable to be more immediately noticeable than dysentery. A large fluorescent rucksack immediately marking you out as a Westerner in what could be an imminent hostage situation is precisely the kind of thing to do it, though. As luck would have it, Lewis is wearing just such a thing. This wasn't because he was some kind of amateur, but because he had lost his own far less conspicuous holdall in a game of cards in a hostel in Jaipur some weeks earlier. While that's a fairly rock and roll way to lose a holdall, he was now a crime magnet. A man gave him an Indian shoulder bag and told him to transfer his things into it. This good Samaritan refused any offer of payment, probably wary of money that Lewis was keeping in his undergarments, and told him to be copious and unabashed in his dysenteric activities as this would make the group as a whole less appealing to the approaching motorcycle highwayman. Surprised to find that his intestinal complaint had made him not only welcome, but something of a talisman, Lewis settled in as best he could to await aggravated robbery. Happily, it didn't happen. When a motorcycle did appear, it was carrying a very large polythene sack, perhaps a skillfully tied ground sheet, full of diesel. It occurred to Lewis that riding up to a group of people with such a thing hanging inches over hot engine casing and sundry other ready sources of ignition was likely to make you even less popular than dysentery on a bus, and he was intrigued. It was a Royal Enfield motorcycle, commonly acquired as Indian Army surplus, and popping the machine on its kickstand, the rider approached him. Broken down, said the rider, removing his goggles. Yes, mate. Been stuck here for ages. Supposed to be in Jaisalmer by now, said Lewis. The rider stroked his chin thoughtfully, as if a childhood memory, long forgotten, had been half stirred. Yes, yes, I know this bus. It is the Jaisalmer bus, yes. I saw it leave this morning. Only fuel for one hundred miles. Jaisalmer two hundred miles. Very bad. With this, the man picked up a pebble, removed the petrol cap on the side of the bus and dropped it into the tank. It hit metal. You see that sound? Empty, he said, in the manner of someone cracking a hitherto unsolved murder case. ''You knew this bus was here?'' said Lewis. ''Well, not here exactly, no,'' said the rider. ''But around this region hereabouts, I work at the bus depot.'' Adopting a formal stance, he bowed slightly and offered his hand. Lewis shook it. ''I'm sorry,'' said Lewis, in a measured tone to the rider, who was smiling in a helpful and receptive manner. ''When you saw the bus leave this morning with not enough diesel, you didn't think to tell anyone?'' ''Yes, yes,'' said the man, pouring fuel from his makeshift reservoir into the tank of the bus with ease. As if he did this sort of thing quite often. Quite often, I see the bus go with not enough fuel for journey. But I think that well, maybe it will be all right. Stranger things have happened. This was true, thought Lewis. Lots of things stranger than a hundred miles of diesel running out halfway through a two hundred mile journey do happen. Yes, the man from the bus depot emptied a last of the diesel into the bus, exchanged some conversational Urdu with the driver, benefited from a generous whip round that the driver then spontaneously organised in gratitude at deliverance from bandits got on his Royal Enfield, kicked it into life, shook Lewis's hand again and puttered up into the distance. Relieved, all the passengers got onto the bus. Except for Lewis, who shut himself and then got back on the bus. (laughs) South London, no good mate. Mercifully, Lewis's dysentery went away fairly quickly. After burning all his clothes in a hostel on the outskirts of Jaisalmere, Lewis immersed himself in the city's many markets. His first thought was for the richly decorated tapestries which seemed to explode from traders' stalls. Approaching one with a particularly impressive range, he asked for a wholesale price. ''Your bag very nice,'' said the trader. ''Where you get it?'' Lewis ignored him, and the trader started to eagerly examine the stitching along the shoulder strap. ''Tapestries,'' said Lewis. ''How much to ship to London?'' ''It's very expensive,'' said the trader. ''But your bag is a beautiful one. Did you get it from a trader here in Jaisalmer?" Stroppy the question was again brushed aside, and a deal was struck for a small shipment of tapestries. The same tapestries, in fact, that are currently hanging from the walls of Lewis's flat in Highgate. It's four floors up, looks out like over a small piece of woodland, and sitting in it is like being in a tent and a tree house at the same time. A very similar sequence of events happened with carvings, beads and pashminas, all brought back to London and traded at Camden. Lewis chose Camden because it was just up the road from where he lived, and he spent a great deal of his youth there shopping for mod clothes during more reckless times. Undeterred, he returned to India after each failure, avoiding dysentery, but not avoiding questions from every trader he approached about his bag. They loved the quality of the thing, they loved its colour, they loved the evident durability and the way the leather aged, and they continued to love it, even after he explained how and why he acquired it. The endless questions didn't weird him out. Walking into a small shop in Jaisalmere, stuffed floor to ceiling with his exact bag, and variations thereof, did, however. It was at roughly this point that the penny could stand it no longer, and finally dropped. If I wanted to buy 50 of these and ship them home, what kind of price could you give me, said Lewis. Unfortunately, the course of commerce, like the course of true love, seldom runs smooth. The shopkeeper was almost perfectly spherical, and perspiring to a level that suggested he was actually made of liquid. He was also an almost superhumanly belligerent man, and he and Lewis took an instant dislike to each other, to the point that the penny, having dropped, was in danger of rolling irretrievably under a sideboard. Westerners, snapped the spherical shopkeeper, I am sick of you. You're all the same. You come in here with your big numbers and try to think you can make money from me. Get out. Lewis had only got three syllables into the sentence, but I only wanted to quote, you must know what your wholesale price is, before he was again shouted at to leave. Out of spite... He replied that he wouldn't without a figure. The spherical shopkeeper pointedly went back to reading a copy of Time Out which had Kira Knightley on the cover. Some minutes passed. To kill time, Lewis started rolling a cigarette. You cannot smoke in here, shouted the spherical shopkeeper, looking up from Time Out so quickly the sweat actually flew from his hair. It wasn't even particularly hot, Lewis noted. I'm not going to smoke it, I'm saving it for later, said Lewis, and the spherical shopkeeper went back to his reading. To amuse himself, Lewis took a Zippo lighter from his pocket and flipped it open, causing the spherical shopkeeper to look up tetchily. When he did so, he smiled at him and put the lighter back in his goat bag. This happened several times, as several more minutes passed. At about the point where several becomes twenty, the copy of Time Out with Kira Knightley on the cover was lowered, folded damply and placed carefully within a teetering stack of other timeouts, which, judging by the care the spherical shopkeeper took, was arranged chronologically. A breakthrough seemed imminent. Tell you what, said Lewis, I can see you're busy. Why don't I come back tomorrow and we can talk about it again then? Two days, said the spherical shopkeeper. You come back day after tomorrow, we discuss price then. Now fuck off and go, please. With that, Lewis put his cigarette behind his ear and left. Just to annoy the spherical shopkeeper, he didn't go back in two days, but in three. To annoy him in return, the spherical shopkeeper kept him waiting for two hours while he read Copies of timeout, One, Lewis noticed, featuring Swade on the cover, which therefore must have been over a decade old, and once again he responded by pretending to light cigarettes. At some length, he purchased 50 bags and shipped to his brother's house, where they sat in the garage in a big cardboard box. They sat there for longer than anticipated, as he decided to take a ton of acid and wander around Goa for a while. With both his money and his concept of reality all but depleted, it was time to head back to London and become the Goatbag Man. Okay, so that was uh, the Ballot of the goat bag, man. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, you're supposed to do different accents when you're reading speech. Uh, I thought about that, but I'd feel a bit weird doing uh, an Indian person's accent. Not necessarily because it's wrong, you know what I mean? I just feel a bit uncomfortable. So hopefully you'll be able to have followed who was speaking at what point there. Um, if not, I don't know what we're going to do. All right? BLOCK! Dear Rachel, I am as English as rain in an alleyway. Scramble back a few generations though, and there was a dash of Highlander lurking in the gene pool. This came as no surprise to me, as I have long demonstrated a fondness for shortbread, porridge and bagpipes. In fact, the mass pipes and drums of the Royal Tank Regiment appear between River Deep Mountain High and Uptown Top Rankin in a playlist I was listening to on the Northern Line this afternoon. And they seem strangely at home there. Our main family name is Whitehead. The dynasty, which can best be described as something of a handful, has always lived in and around London and the Medway towns. Once upon a time, a Stray Sinclair daughter, defenseless against the charm juggernaut of the Whitehead menfolk, found herself transplanted to the sharp end of Victorian London, which must have pleased her no end. Why the Whiteheads were marauding to the distant north is a mystery, but the bloodline was nonetheless kindled. And, as an unforeseen side-effect, here I am, dangling at the other end of it. A quick bit of research into the Sinclairs reveals that they fought with great bravery at the Battle of Culloden in 1745. Defeat for the Highlanders here marked the end of their entire society. The reason I feel affinity with the Sinclairs is that they fought with great bravery on both sides. I like to think that this practical approach to duplicity is what the Sinclairs brought to the Whitehead table, and it echoed throughout the generations culminating 267 years after that famous battle in the moral quandary I often face when presented with a plate of jelly eels. Goddard's is an excellent pie and mash and eel shop on the corner of Greenwich Market and King William Walk and I recommend it if you are in the area. Danny and I regularly have pie and mash from here during quiet trading days but on Sunday he treated us to jelly eels instead. Both of us are familiar with this maligned East End delicacy from our respective childhoods even though Danny spent his over the water in Deptford. Historically, jelly deals are a truly pan-London dish, and I should like this recognised. I don't see why the East End should take the blame, with Acton and Chiswick shuffling about at the other end of the Central Line, refusing to make eye contact, and acting like they've never heard of seafood before. It's not that jelly deals aren't nice, although that is a large part of the reason they are best avoided. Similar dishes are enjoyed all over Europe, wherever there is a tidal waterway. The thing is, no matter how many sprigs of parsley, or glasses of Chianti, or chunks of French loaf you arrange around them, they still look like something that has already been eaten. The luckless eel is decapitated, detailed, diced, and dropped into boiling water where it remains until it behaves itself. It is almost wondrously good for you, and I conclude that a liberal dousing with chilli vinegar, one of the traditional liqueurs that pop up all over the place in London cuisine, will cheer the whole thing up no end. As Danny and I hoovered up eel jelly from plastic spoons, I reflected that as the actual meat content of the eel consists of penny-sized buttons that have to be gnawed off a parboiled vertebrae, the view wasn't really worth the climb. Or, to borrow a similar pre-electricity phrase in common usage at about the time an obscure branch of my distant family tree was spread betting at the Battle of Culloden, the game's not really worth the candle. Other games not worth the candle are the Olympic ones about to engulf London. Jelly deals are ugly, but they're good for you. The Olympics are just ugly. In fact, everything about them is ugly. The logo is ugly. The lettering font is ugly. The merchandise is ugly. The mascots are ugly. The whole thing was inflicted upon London under the ugly promise that there'd be no more fat kids and that everyone would be happy forever by Tony Blair a National Disgrace. It exists solely as an exercise in the most cynical capitalism imaginable, which is ugly, and also difficult for me to excuse, even as an enthusiastic and committed capitalist myself. The stadium is not ugly as such, but bland and unimaginative at best. Remarkably, even the posters on the tube telling you where to go for what event are a queasy shade of hot pink, and therefore ugly. I don't know anyone who wants the Olympics. Not liking either my regional dish or regional showcase sporting event has left me feeling, well, not guilty, but subject to a tiny bit of Sinclair duplicity. Perhaps, in a pleasing example of genetic symmetry, an errant whitehead female was also snapped up by Bonnie Sinclair Man too, all those years ago, and there was a market trader in Caithness cheering chewing through platefuls of haggis in front of the Highland Games, thinking, yeah, I like being Scottish and everything, but I am bored and this stuff tastes awful. Okay, so there we are. Uh, that's two bits for this week. hope you enjoyed them. Thanks for bearing with us, uh, if indeed you still are. Um, thanks to uh, Richie from uh, Little Rock Audio for uh, doing all the editing and production and all the kind of mucking about. My job's done now. It takes me about 20 minutes. He so has to spend hours on it. Bargain. Um, and we will see you, or you'll hear from us anyway, I will imagine you, uh, next week. All right, my day you go. ta That was issue 5 of the Board of Excitement podcast from Public Grief Junkie. Thanks for listening.